Hey everyone, um, and welcome to Emmaus Way. If you would, find your way toward the center. Um, thanks again to Marie and Amanda and SK for doing so much with our station worship. Um, it was really meaningful, and so thank you. Hear now the call together. From the dust of the earth, the Holy One breathed us into life. Through the breath of God, we are all connected. Shaped in her image, God formed us with a purpose to create, to serve, to tend, to protect, to love, that life may flourish in all its forms, in fleshed ministries. So great to see you all um, on a Sunday that is starting to feel like fall. Um, yeah, it's really nice. And this is our last Sunday in our creation series. Um, and we're gonna dive into Genesis three later. But before we do that, let's sing our community song. It's the last week for it. Um, and the kids are actually gonna head upstairs to talk about creation. They're just starting their creation series tonight. So, Ben, do you wanna start us? Or just, this is my maker's world? All right. And so kids, y'all are going to head upstairs with Elizabeth and Ada and the other volunteers to learn about creation. Um, and we'll see you back down here in a little bit. Speaking of kids, I know that you all have probably seen this email a few times, and you may have overlooked it like we do with emails. Um, but we really, really need quality kids teachers, particularly two, um, to help us during this interim time um, since Rhodey has left. And for those of you that may not know, Kendall as well got a soccer coaching job, which has her playing um, coaching soccer a lot of Sunday evenings. Um, and so we really, really need two excellent kids workers um, that love kids and would happily teach and come alongside our young children. And we cannot do it alone. Um, and so we need like all of you, like really, this is like a plea. Like 
any place that you are, where there are people who like kids, or you know anybody who likes kids, if you have any connections to like elementary school teachers that maybe want to do this, or great babysitters that have watched your kids before, nannies, um, please, please, please send them our way. Um, these are both paid positions. It's Sunday, it's like pretty much a Sunday commitment. Um, and we have sent out the job descriptions through UA Social, but you can reach out to myself or Ben or Elizabeth, um, and we would happily send it again. Um, yeah, paid, and they're paid well, um, to well-paid positions. So please help us. We have things kind of covered through October, um, but we need, yeah, we just really need to be making some hires this month. And we've been trying since August to find folks. So, yeah, would love any and all help that you all have to give. Um, that would be great. Other announcements, things happening in the life of our community this week or the week following. Um, so a week from Tuesday, I guess, uh, I've been invited to be part of a panel at Duke Chapel called The Urgency, so Every Life Sacred, The Urgency and Gun Violence. This is something that I would be glad for regardless of whether I were involved in it. Um, I think they've done a really good job of putting together a group of folks that can speak on a national and on an intensely local level, uh, including our police chief, um, to what has been a very violent year in Durham and a violent year in the United States more broadly. Uh, Luke Powery, the chapel leader, put out a very, to my mind, is a very forceful sort of like statement on the chapel as a Duke figure. Um, you know, his stance on gun violence is a moral and faith issue. And so, yeah, I'm going to be trying to speak into that on Tuesday night, the 15th, at 7 p.m. in the Duke Chapel. I would love to see some friendly faces in that big, big space. Um, and I, I hope they have also set up a conversation that would be generally then this conversation also often is in my opinion. Can you send out something through that? I sure can. Thank you. Yeah, we can send it out. It's also already posted. If you go to the Duke Chapel website, um, kind of on their upcoming events, there's a really lovely description as well, and we can send it out. Um, the other exciting thing in the life of our community, next Sunday is um, Baptism Dedication Sunday, and we have five, four different families and five children next week that will either be baptized or dedicated. So I hope that you will come and be a part of that. It's always a really joyous time in the life of our community. Um, it's also a time when sometimes families and parents and other friends come, so it should be a really great Sunday. And we will, before the service, from four, kind of the first half, the first hour, and um, we'll just have a time of like snacks. Often we do a kind of reception after the baptism Sunday, um, but this year we're just going to do it before. So that'll be at four, and then baptism dedication Sunday at five. Um, Alana and August and Ellington and Jane Kite, they will all be dedicated. And then Anna Clara Nelson. Um, Shannon's daughter will be baptized. So if you have a child or you yourself would like to be baptized or dedicated, it's not too late. 
Um, and if you've never been to an Emmaus Way baptism slash dedication Sunday, in true Emmaus Way fashion, it's like choose your own adventure. And it's really lovely and like shows the diversity, just like the theological and ecclesiological diversity of our community. And I love it. So looking forward to seeing you there. I think that's it on announcements, unless somebody else has something to share. All right. Well, we have Mona and Charles with us for one more week. Thanks to Mona's fabulous artist residency and musically taking us through different ways to think about creation. And tonight, as we think about the fall in creation. So I'll let y'all take it away.
Thanks so much, Mona and Charles. Um, so if you've been with us or have been in and out, over the last five weeks, we've delved into Genesis 1 and 2 and have honestly asked ourselves what a creation narrative has to offer. And here we are on the last night of the series. Over six, five weeks into week six, we've named the invitation and possibility of being co-creators as our creativity takes place alongside the work of our creator. We've named our oneness and interconnectedness to all living things in the created world, as well as to God, and have also wrestled with and named our humility and limitation in our capacity and role within creation. And how far too often humanity, through these very creation narratives we've been talking about, have caused great destruction and deterioration of our created world. Yet also, we've named that there's still space, still the capacity, still the possibility to engage creation more honestly and holistically in ways that matter even now. And tonight, we're rounding out our creation series with the second half of the second narrative of the creation story 
a text most often referred to as the fall. I'm sure many of you have heard it a time or two. A text that has far too often been misunderstood and has been used to guilt and abuse and cause some to feel less than and unworthy when that is not the case. It's a hard text. It's one I think is most often misunderstood. And yet it's a text that can't be separated from the rest of creation. It is in fact a part of the creation narratives. And we can't separate it, even though I kind of would like to. So that's where we're gonna dive in tonight after we pass the piece with Genesis 3, with a homily and a conversation. Looking forward to it. Also have a little fear and trepidation, but I think that's normal before talking about the fall. Um, so pass the peace of Christ to one another. We have snacks and drinks in the back. Um, if you would like to get something tactile from one of our art stations from earlier, feel free. Um, the braiding station would be a really great one um, where you could get some, I guess, rocks to play with if you would like. But we'll pass the peace of Christ to one another and come back in just a moment to talk. All right, if everyone would um, make their way back to the center, and we're gonna dive right in. So I would love to have two readers. The first reader to read Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and then the second reader to pick it up at verse 21 and read to the end. So, who would read for us tonight? Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and then 21 to the end. Great, and who, then somebody else can just jump in right after Sarah. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or, sh- or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Verse 21 to the end. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man for his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. Place the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning, uh, turning to guard the, um, the way to the tree of life. Thanks so much, Sarah and Neil. So this is it, right? First example of sin, often referred to as the fall. Sin, the human ability to choose, and the human reality of making a poor choice, resulting in consequences. What we find here. Sin, the thing we don't exactly like to talk about. But as writer, preacher, and theologian Barbara Brown Taylor shares in her book, Speaking of Sin, in watering down or surrendering the theological language of sin, we, and by we, she's really indicting progressive, theological, more theologically progressive folk. She says that we have rendered ourselves speechless in the face of, re- of a reality common to human living. But she goes on to say that the way that we have been taught to think about sin isn't that great, that we've been taught to think about sin using either a law metaphor or an Ill- illness metaphor, and both fall flat. With the law metaphor, we understand sin as breaking the rules. That is there, that is there are certain rules in the world, good and bad, right and wrong, and you either successfully follow the rules or you fail by breaking them. And when you break them, you get punished. Easy way to read and understand Genesis 3. Or there's another way we look at sin through illness. And in this view, sin is a sickness, and sickness, in fact, is debilitating, not unlike sin. But here's the thing, everyone gets sick sometimes, and we generally get sick because of things that are outside of our control. Nobody really chooses to get a disease or get sick, and they can't be held responsible for the effects of that disease or the effects of the disease of sin if they just happened. But Taylor says that this way of looking at sin really doesn't allow for personal agency or freedom, right? Like human, the ability to be free. Sin is something that merely happens to us, so sin could be argued in this text with the illness metaphor that the snake just happened to Adam and Eve, caused Eve to be sick, to eat the apple, and sin, and then Eve, just happened to get Adam sick by getting him to eat the apple too. No personal agency. But then, there are actually three Hebrew words used throughout the Hebrew Bible 
Ta, Shagah, and Pasha that convey a sense of sin that are not as simple as law or illness. They're complex without a real simple definition, but collectively they mean when anyone has good intentions but misses the mark. Acting wrongly, intentionally breaking the commandments, turning our backs on God and all the things God loves. But why really must we even have language or a frame for sin to begin with? Can't we just skip over the fall and sin in Genesis 3 as like a piece and a part of creation, but it really, really doesn't matter? I'd definitely be more comfortable, I think, and I think a lot of folks do. And we could do that, and perhaps some of us will do that, and many of us have, I know that I have. But in that same work, what's so convicting, I find, in Taylor's argument is that she says, if we don't know how to speak of sin, there's a very real chance that we don't know how to speak of grace. And speaking of sin may be our best bet to truly begin to understand the depth and breadth of grace at offer. What happens if the only way we get past the harmful understanding, and I think there are a lot of harmful understandings of the fall and sin, is for sin to be discussed in such a way that it doesn't have to be the story of the fall narrative or the major arc, but rather sin is understood as an honest lived reality, not overlooked, but one that ultimately opens the door and the possibility for grace to be present and to come in, in the fall and ever since. Grace. What if we can't fully understand grace without the narrative of this fall? Grace, Frederick Buechner reminds us, is something you can never get but only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. He goes on to say, there's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out. Maybe being able to reach out is a gift too. And yet grace, like sin, feels messy and complicated when interwoven with realities of forgiveness. Just this week, fired Dallas police officer Amber Geiger, who is white, received a sentence of 10 years in prison for the murder of an unarmed black man. 
Botham Jean. But what's really been going around social media and the news outlets is the act of Botham Jean's brother. The words of grace, forgiveness, love, and well wishes offered by him to Geiger, capped off by a warm embrace. But theologian and historian J. Cameron Carter, who recently was at Duke Divinity, put it, the scene of grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation operates almost like a ritual, but not a liberating redemptive ritual so many particularly white privileged Christians want to believe it is. Carter goes on to say, This week's show of grace and forgiveness toward Geiger, like those before it, require that we ask some hard questions. What if grace and forgiveness and their compulsory racialized performance are part of what makes this anti-black world keep on ticking? What if grace and forgiveness work in the interest of anti-blackness? And finally, what if grace and forgiveness are part of what must be refused in order to bring an end to an anti-black and brown world? What if grace and forgiveness are part of what must be refused in order to bring an end to an anti-black and brown world? Yes. Grace and forgiveness as used and coerced by white supremacy and white privilege and anti-blackness but must be refused a thousand times, yes. And also, I wonder, might our historic inadequacies and inabilities in talking about sin in our real inability to talk about sin, beginning with today's text, be in part what keeps the ways in which we think of and conceive of grace and forgiveness atrophying and becoming weapons of destruction that continue to enforce an anti-black and brown world. What liberating things might happen in creation and in our lives if we got honest with how this text and understanding of sin through law and illness metaphors have been weapons of white supremacy? And therefore, grace too often has been used as a weapon of white supremacy and anti-blackness too, because it's all we've got. It's all we've ever known. But what if that doesn't have to be the case? How then do we hold all of these realities together while recognizing sin in this original context of Genesis 3, a narrative written to a people just trying to understand who God was and is and what their role in it might be, was not a measure or intended weapon for white supremacy or empire at all but rather sin, as contextually written in this text, was meant in part to open all persons, all creatures, all things, toward a liberating, life-giving grace for all dust earthlings, even dust itself. For you see, maybe you remember, earlier in the story, In chapter two, God told them point blank, you will die. 
if you eat from the tree of knowledge. You will be killed for doing that act. But instead, God clothed them and let them live. Life, when there should have been death, an act of sheer grace that seems far more liberating and all-encompassing than the constructs in which we too often think of grace and sin today. A grace that freed Adam and Eve to live, to really, really live. Sure, in ways different than perhaps they thought initially, but to still live and live life abundant. And maybe that same grace frees all of us, all of creation, to truly live too. If only we might imagine and understand it as a gift far more encompassing and liberating and empire-breaking than I think we've allowed ourselves. But somewhere along the way, I think that we've just kind of forgotten that life itself, every breath we take in the midst of creation, every time a bird sings, every time the air finally begins to cool, is a gift of grace itself. Creation is a gift of grace. And I think we've forgotten that life itself is a gift because I think maybe it's just me, but I think many of us have forgotten how to truly and freely live. We've forgotten how to live in part because we've forgotten how to honestly name sin and understand a grace in a way that's not coercive, nor in a way that keeps some oppressed and lets others off scot-free. We've forgotten in part, because I think where we've sinned the most is we've forgotten that we belong to one another, all others, even the birds of the air and the humus that's been around far longer than any of us will be. We've forgotten what it means to live not as a sin-sick, as a passive sin-sick people, or as a passive people that aren't really sure what to do with sins, so we just don't really talk about it, but then we don't really talk about grace either. So then we can't really be liberated, grace-filled filled co-creators with God. We've forgotten how to live in part because somehow our human hubris, myself included, has been the product of these creation narratives, right? Just straight hubris. And so humility and our own limitations and our own finiteness in this great, big, created world becomes suppressed. And in the suppression, all we're doing is slowly suffocating ourselves when we forget at the center of it all is not empire, it is not the market, but it is that we belong to one another and we are all a people and a creation filled with grace. And at the end of the day, we're all just dust, but somehow there's grace in the dust too. But what happens 
when we remember from Eden on that life itself is grace-filled gift. Being a part of creation is grace-filled gift. And there's still space, still the capacity, still the possibility to engage creation more honestly and holistically and actually live together, all creatures together, and love all things that God loves because of grace. Of course, sin will be present, but also present is a deep abiding grace, a grace that confronts and challenge, challenges, as well as a grace that frees and lets us live. A grace inviting us, I think, to live in such ways that we may be a people who learn from teenage climate activists and indigenous persons and come alongside to help restore our planet. That we may be a people that works toward making uninhabitable places habitable. We may be a people calling out oppressive notions of sin and grace that keep this world anti-black and brown and work for a different way. That we may be a people that learns from all aspects of creation itself, that pauses to find the peace amongst the wild things. That we may be a people transformed by meditating and praying with the very elements of the earth. That we may be a people willing to reach out and risk something big for this beloved creation, knowing we can reach out and risk and love boldly because grace will meet us there. Because God, a God of grace, will meet us there. in case you need remembering. The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are. Here is creation. It might ne never have been, but it is. Because the party wouldn't have been complete without it. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out. Maybe being able to reach out and risk for this creation, for life, is a gift too. Now for my homily, no, that's it. Uh, no. Precisely not. Uh, Molly's given us a lot to think about, to wrestle with, to try and sum up, and just want to, yeah, create some space after six weeks of talking about creation and wrestling with this, yeah, maybe thorniest part of these three chapters tonight. Yeah. Where are you at? Where's your head at? Where's your heart at? learning about soil lately <clears throat> and how if we tend to it, a magnificent abundance just basically comes mm -hmm. forth. Like something like eight billion living things in a tea tablespoon or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
there was a movie last night, The Biggest Little Farm, which is about a couple that goes to this really dusty piece of land and decides they're going to invest in it and puts compost on it and tries to mirror ecological systems and processes and it breaks forth in abundance. Like, and that's why I want everybody to see this movie because the abundance of that 10 years is unbelievable. Like, it is like the creation story. Like, everything comes um, Yeah, and I think one of the, the narrator of that film, he said, maybe the moment I you know you're a farmer is when you're terrified and you um, are overcome by mysterious unpredictability mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And you watch as just like every day a new fascination, a new, and I, I don't know, I think something I'm thinking about with creation right now is abundance is there for us. Mm -hmm. um, the rub is, it's unpredictable. Mm -hmm. and it takes us out of the control seat. And we like to control things, but we're missing beauty, and we're missing flow, we're missing co-creation. As um, we do that, so. All right, I'll propose a question. We started this series in a circle in this room, asking our jaded selves, many of us, my jaded self, what does a creation narrative offer? And we chose that question because Elizabeth <laughs> and for some others are tired in some ways of approaching difficult texts, approaching difficult concepts, and going through the litany that is right there at the front of our brains to say, here's what is so up about this world. We wanted to start the conversation in a place that says, if there is something that a creation narrative might offer, what would it be? And then we spent four more weeks and one more this week saying, all right, this creation narrative, where is all that stuff that would have been right there in the first week? Where is it in this text? And where have we read that into it? And where has it been read into for, our, for us? And where is there something else here? And so in these few minutes, what does this creation narrative offer a community captivated liberated, tethered by a gospel of Jesus Christ, by a Christian narrative in which this is the launching text. What does this creation narrative offer if it has something to offer us? Oh no, I got just really irritated. Even just like thinking as one of us and Charles were playing, I was reading the scripture and I was like, the F, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, and just remembering like all the different like sermons and Bible studies I've heard about the fall and trying to come together in my head about what do I even think about what's there and the words that aren't there and losing the mind of hate grace. <laughs> Which is not like not and I, I mean, yes, I love grace. It's my favorite thing. I'm glad especially when I get it, right? <laughs> but Ah, oh, just thinking about like Eve 
and how he is positioned and being a woman. But then that made me think, well, maybe that's, maybe we always want to distance ourselves from people who are like us that did something really screwed up. Mm -hmm. And I tell my students all the time they can't do that as I teach racial oppression, right? Like, mm -hmm. sure, you're not your ancestors, but you benefit and reap, mm -hmm. you know? And in the other ways, no, you're not your ancestors and you're not cursed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I, was, I guess all I have to say, I don't know, but I was perturbed <laughs> reading the, the scripture, like, especially the question of, like, what's not there? Like, I want, I don't know, kind of like when you see those movies and they do the creative thing, like, you see somebody's story, then you get somebody else's lens, and you're like, oh, I want that for this. I want to know, like, why Genesis 3? Why do we need a third? And I think the first one is totally wonderful and complete. And it's not because I'm afraid of sin. You know, is this individual sin? Is this community sin? Like, how did the Hebrews speak about it? Who wrote this? Is it all just paternalistic? Do we have to keep going through this? Like, why do I have to honor that if it was written by a bunch of men? For um, one of Avery's classes, he was just reading a Robin Wilkimer book where she was uh, explaining a, a, an indigenous um, like origin story, kind of similar, the mirroring that in Eve, and um, she like fell to earth in a raindrop, and it was this beautiful story of you know an empowered woman coming on her own. Um, there was an image of her, that woman meeting Eve and saying, sister, you got the short end of the stick. <laughs> um, and thinking about origin stories and the role they play and how we see ourselves in relation to creation um, through an, a, you know, an indigenous lens and trying to reimagine, okay, what if we didn't have this story or what if the, the, you know, the men didn't tell the story about women in this way? Um, and, I just appreciated that recognition of, okay, there are other origin, there are other, you know, creation narratives, there are other in that ways to imagine, um, particularly women's role in, in the making of the world, and I thought that was beautiful. One question I've been thinking about in relation to this one, and it's, yeah, we're, we're, we're speaking to it, Maybe a little different. I've been thinking about the quote, what did we fall from? This is a fall. We're, talking, we're busy thinking about where we fall into what this narrative invites us into. Well, what, what was it a fall from? And what did we fall through on the way that maybe mucked us up from what we fell from? So maybe that's a different, just throw that out as a different way to think about this. Not simply where we fell to, but if we're headed back toward what we fell from, So because I'm a literature nerd, I think of East of Eden a lot when I think about like the fall of Genesis. Um, and if you don't know it, it's by John Steinbeck. It chronicles um, kind of a whole bunch of the creation story you can read into any part of it. And I keep on thinking about like the second fall of Cain killing Abel and how uh, humans keep falling. And I'm like, are we ever going to stop falling? It feels like we're still falling now. And that it feels like it's never going to end. And is there a point where we'll hit rock bottom? Have we already hit rock bottom? Are we building our way up? Is today the day that we start stop falling? Um, 
and thinking about like kind of the violence that keeps on being perpetrated in our communities and it's like, well this is, you know, like this is the first fall. It was the, the moment where they started falling and when it's going to be like the, the moment of lifting, whatever you can say that. Well, I, I was thinking about East Eden also, as we really this, and um, people who have been around may have heard me talk about East Eden being important to me. And, um, you know, I appreciated the, like, from, from Molly's homily, you know, it struck me on the first night when we had that round table, Caleb, an observation that Caleb made was that God changed God's plan, right? So God created and then was like, oh, actually, I'm going to add women to the picture in one of these things, right? And so there was like, first plan, it's good, and then, wait a minute, I'm changing my mind about how I'm going to do this. And Molly kind of highlighted, like, okay, the plan is if you break this rule or whatever, make this choice, succumb to this illness, I don't know, you know, like, you're going to die. <laughs> and evidently, like, what we see here is that the plan changed, and there was choice again. Um, and new set of choices because you're not going to continue to dwell in this place with this same choice and this same set of circumstances. There's going to be a new, I mean, there's banishment here, but there's also a new set of possibilities for new choices, new life. And I'd highlight that they are not sent off their separate ways in isolation, right? Like the two humans are sent out together. Um, and to me, that's another act of grace, right? Like that, that we have one another to try to continue to make new choices every time. And, um, you know, I hate, to, I hate to be a spoiler. I used to get mad when Tim would do this, but... <laughs> If you can make if if you can make your way through East Eden, at the end, like there's this really big thing, this Hebrew verb about um, that comes up in the Cain and Abel story, and it, the the punchline is that it means you may, like there's a choice, you you have agency and you may choose right um and so that's what i'd like to see here is like okay yeah I, i'm not an apologist for some of this stuff about eve but like that's what i'd like to see is grace in being able to choose again and grace in having one another to go through the difficulties of trying to make those choices again. Molly talked about forgotten gifts. How many gifts of one and two get forgotten <laughs> on the way through number three? And how many of them come back in a different form with a different set of choices around them? 
and what follows. Yeah. I can tell we love this story. And so I want to make sure there's some time. This is hard to talk about because like, I just want to yell. Right? Like, there's nothing I can say about this that's going to be positive or enriching to anyone. Right? Like, we weren't called, we're pushed. Right? Like, here's a tree. It's great. You can't eat it. Stay dumb. Right? Like, who wants to stay dumb? Is that a better existence? It's not. Right? That, like, everything set, you know, if I put the candy basket in my house and I told my kids, don't eat from that candy basket, are they bad when they eat from the candy basket? No, they're not. I put it there. I know what's going on. Right? Like, I get why the story exists because the world hurts. Everything sucks. I don't know about this grace. Like, life is a gift. I don't agree. Life is suffering. It's terrible. And so, yeah, we want an excuse for why is it terrible. Here it is. Right? We did something wrong, but we didn't. And yeah, reading this just pisses me off. Didn't have that. Um, yeah. Like, there's a villain in it, and it's not a snake. It's not a bee. There's an obvious bill. It's the person who said it all out. Wow, I can't believe as a psychologist, I never thought about the original marshmallow test. <laughs> <laughs> the marshmallow Another thing that made me think of is there are certain things that are so compelling about privilege. And someone saying, God saying, do not take that privilege. <laughs> and like, it is so incredibly difficult to leave some of those, some of that fruit. Like, there, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about like what it means for something to feel irresistible. And to feel so incredibly hard, the like that, like at least for me, when I when I confront the the like racism, the in, the um, ways that I'm complicit in the world, my internal misogyny, um, classism, that it, it that it's painful. You're right, like it is painful, and it's difficult to. I mean, like. It's difficult, it feels impossible sometimes. And so I like, I really appreciated what you said, like bringing in more than just, bringing in more and complicating it beyond gender into race. And you know, that's implicitly class and that it like grace is, it's so important because it's just so painful to let go of, you know, that like, oh, I'm not racist. Like, it's painful. It's a painful thing to let go of your privilege mm -hmm. because it's shame. It can fe make you feel shameful mm -hmm. and, like, shamed. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's what I was thinking of when you said that. It was, like, mm -hmm. it totally changed. It totally opened up something for me. Like, what is the thing sitting on the table that can feel so compelling? Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also interesting to we think about it if we keep God as like divine, but also in some sense it was kind of like God giving us privilege, right? Like mm -hmm. they're like us now, right? Yeah. They're not us. Yeah. And now you access the privilege we weren't supposed to access, right? Mm -hmm. So even 
kind of like flipping it on its head, mm -hmm. you know, what does that teach us about how we treat people are accessing things perhaps more exclusive or more supposed to be accessed? Mm -hmm. And the guarding of what's quote unquote ours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm okay. Oh, yeah. And I always, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge scholar, I'd be interested in talking <laughs> to those of you who are. Because, I mean, you know, the knowing good and evil, I mean, obviously they know the difference between, like, you know, the woman objects and says, oh, we're not supposed to do that. So it's not like they don't know that they're, you know, good choices and bad choices, right? So is that experiencing good and evil? Like, cost of an unbounded existence. I wonder, yeah, that's a question, I'm proposing it, to say like, I think that's a question that could take us forward to a conversation we're about to open on time and revelation, and where it goes, and what it looks like in the context of an empire to be faced with a question, do you want to be unbounded, or do you want to bound yourselves within a world and with each other and according to terms that might set limitations on your horizon. That's gonna be my effort to connect us to where we're headed and to invite Mona and Charles up to lead us in confession and absolution. That's right. Charles just saved us all from a <laughs> vocal torture session. <laughs> I'm holding on to hope that one day this could be made right. Strange. 
I just wanted to say thank you all so much for letting me be here these five weeks and I do feel a kind of grace here from you all and I've appreciated the interconnectedness and uh, when Ben and I were emailing I just think this is a beautiful song for me to be able to help play with you all all you refugees Oh, yeah. 
According to Robin Wall Kimmerer, one of the quotes Marie has given us, in the Western tradition, there's a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, the human being on top. Pinnacle of evolution, the darling of creation, and the plants at the bottom, but in native ways of knowing. Human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus the most to learn. We must look to our teachers among the species for guidance. Their wisdom is apparent in the way that they live. They teach us by example. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been and we have had and have had time to figure things out. Who are the refugees? If we're being welcomed in, who's welcoming us? Also, from Robin Walkimer, if time could run backward, like a film in reverse, we would see this mess reassemble itself into lush green hills and moss-covered ledges of limestone. The streams would run back up the hills to the springs and the salt would stay glittering in underground rooms. If time could run forward, like an invitation into the future, would we see this mess reassemble itself into a table where grain was made bread, where grapes were made wine, where we could run back into each other in springs of possibility and limitation? This table is saying that abundance is possible. As SK has reminded us, it's saying that grace is available and it is asking if we are willing to give up control and allow it to happen and to be gathered in. It's asking that question again this week. God says yes. We cannot create what we cannot imagine. You're welcome to this table and that spirit as we take this conversation and this crotch cranky old narrative forward into that world we're entering tonight. As we always do, pour wine and juice for each other, break bread for each other, break a gluten-free cracker, if that's more your thing. The peace of God, the love of God, the bread and body of Christ is here for you. Welcome.